Hi guys, I'm Joe. I'm Rob. And I'm Sam. And welcome to Athenium, a podcast about writing, literature, and the culture that feeds them. Today we're going to be talking about The Three Musketeers by Alexandre Dumas. So you're probably probably pretty familiar with the term Three Musketeers. I know I try and look up these classic books on Spotify and search for The Three Musketeers and there are a ton of podcasts that are just called the Three Musketeers that are just like three pals just palling around. Um, maybe you have seen some of the other adaptations. And it's culturally just a really well-known term. Um, but that book is absolutely nothing like you expect is going to happen in these cultural terms. So this is a, a very large 700-page book published in the 1800s, so around the same time frame that um, Jane Eyre was, so actually published in 1844, and yeah, my edition has about 700 pages, the official Barnes & Noble Classics version, but th that's kind of the start of it. it it's really about these these three guys who have another guy, and I have some feelings about why it's not called The Four Musketeers, because there's really four main characters who really just throws you off the scent the first little bit. <laughs> and I thought it was going to be a traditional adventure novel, like, I don't know, duels no. all the time and things like that. And it's not, not an adventure novel, but it's painted in a little bit of a different light. Yes, I think it's... it's... <laughs> It is a perfect example of what an adventure novel was at that time. Um, and I think what we would consider uh, adventure now back then would have been more swashbuckling pirates, maybe. And not written about nearly as much. Or, or the dime novels of the Wild West. Um, I think, yeah. But the thing that I always find interesting with this book that I forget about um, and one of the few ways that I think it does translate into other forms in which it is consumed, movies, TV shows, comics. There's comics based on the Three Musketeers, you guys. Uh, is the fact that it's written like he's someone sitting down and telling you a story. I don't know if you guys noticed as you're going through. Oh, and an aside. This friend, do you remember just a few moments ago when I told you about this about him? Such as the four pages about his horse. Well, here's why that's important. <laughs> yeah, I saw a lot of uh, references to that. Lots of... Um... Now, the reader may be wondering why we left this guy out. Well, he is, his story will come in later. That was like one particular character that they really broke the fourth wall about. Yes, and I think um, it's interesting because now I don't think you see books doing that anymore because you have movies and TV shows that do that um, and kind of do it better than a book does, right? When a character addresses you directly in a movie or you have the narrator in a movie, it works a little bit better. Um, that and this book was translated into English from French. And I think it shows. <laughs> I kind of think that if you read this in, in French, it would maybe be a little smoother of a read. Um, particularly when you look at this compared to... Well, Rob, have you read The Count of Monte Cristo? I have. Yeah, yes. That one's yeah. much sm smoother than this book. 
I would definitely agree. Like I really enjoyed the Count of Monte Cristo. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh yeah. Well, let's not get over it. The Count of Monte Cristo had so many more uh, plots and and sorts of side characters staying relevant for so long. I I don't know if I'd call it smooth. It was just as hard to get through. I feel like this story on the whole felt like 15 different short stories that we tried to tie. It'd be like if we took all of the sort of Sherlock stories and tried to slam them into one book and kind of make some of the characters come back. Yeah. It's interesting that you put it that way because that is how this was published. This was published the same way Sherlock was, where um, one chapter was published at a time. I don't know what the frequency was. So a newspaper back then could have been weekly, monthly, or quarterly. Um, But that's how they used this story to sell the newspaper. Uh, and it's interesting that you point that out because maybe this was never intended to be fully brought into as one book and was just supposed to be a, a selling point, maybe? Possibly? I think I would have enjoyed it a lot more if we if it would have been marketed in that same way of like, this is a Sherlock short story. Like, this is the, the story about XYZ. And then I had something to look forward to, like, oh, I remember that character. And it feels like just a different story. And so that's my feedback for Alexander Dumas (laughs) in his death. (laughs) I don't think it was published appropriately. Like, I I think it definitely, I would have had a lot more value out of it if it would have been multiple short stories. Yeah. Well, I know one thing that kind of bothered me is that you had a (laughs) lot of these chapters where there's there's really extensive amounts of dialogue. Um, I mean, to the point where virtually the whole chapter is a conversation. Oftentimes a conversation that is one character explaining something to another character. If I <laughs> if I had been waiting a week or two weeks or a month for the next installment of something, uh, maybe back then I would have been satisfied. But in the modern day, it was bad enough having it as just one chapter. I mean, let alone me having to, let alone it being marketed as a whole short story. And I actually had the same problem with Sherlock the first time that I went through those stories. Uh, A lot of those will do that as well. Yeah, it's it's a different writing style compared to a lot of other things, and it compared to its own works. Um, the sequel to this, which is The Man in the Mask, or 20, nah, 20 years after, yeah, 20 years after, um, is that was actually published as a book. And so when you read that one, it's more like The Count of Monte Cristo. It was written around the same time he wrote The Count of Monte Cristo. Um, I think, too, maybe one of the things that influenced this was, uh, let's see, because this was published in 1844. Yeah, so this Mm -hmm. was the 
first one he really did, and before this he had been doing plays, which maybe would explain why there's so much dialogue. Um, and the one thing that I really like about this book is I really liked uh, Lady Winter because she is an awful person and <laughs> she's a terrible person she's the kind of person that by the end you're you're glad that you don't like her and you're glad that there's a reason not to like her um and she is the one character that in all the adaptations i wish they would actually bring her in and have her be a bad person just let her let milady be a bad person She's a bad person. And not everyone gets, you know, a uh, nice redeeming arc. And, <laughs> and yeah, I, 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 I appreciate the end she gets. I appreciate the fact that they kill her. And it, the fact that, too, it's not like you, when you initially meet her, you necessarily know what she's done. But you slowly learn what she has done. Right. So, uh, let's set up a little frame here. Um, we've talked about the the composition of it. Mm-hmm. What did you guys think about the actual plot? Of the 15 plots, I think I liked about <laughs> three of them. <laughs> I see... Like the the search to find the brooch is like kind of fun, and then again the ending of Lady to Winter like very gruesome, very uh, kind of twisty compared to like what I expected from this book, but also really enjoyed it. Could maybe give or take everything else. What do you think, Sam? <laughs> I like I said to me, Milady's tale. That is the tale that I like in this. So I like the hints you get of her throughout. There are a lot mm-hmm. that are unnecessary um i i think too part of it is that i think it would have been a little more fluid if we would have actually been following um i'm trying to remember is a is athos the leader is he the oldest of the three He's kind of like the de facto leader. I don't know. I don't think any of them answers to one or the other. No, but I think he kind of had the most. One for all, all for one. I think he had the most yeah. interesting story. And I kind of wish it would have stuck more of him, but I agree. There are a lot of side stories. It's like, a, oh, look, he's going to get into a fight over his. Well, you know, a fight over all, all the things. Oh, look, another woman. Yeah. <laughs> I like that is one thing I really disliked about this is they they make out the men in this era to be such horrid players and I don't know if that's true maybe that's true but like oh my goodness boys that and the fact that the three musketeers are not that much older than our main character they're like you know well, three to like six years older than him and somehow they've had all these experiences so many more experiences okay haven't you been fighting and the fact that the, and the, fact that the 
three, the musketeers as a whole, not the three, but all of them, just go around picking fights with the cardinals men. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Very unorganized. Yes. It was, yeah. There is no organization. A little disconcerting to kind of realize that, oh, they're basically just like a gang that's sponsored by the king. They don't <laughs> such really such a good description. <laughs> they don't really like have any express purpose, it seems like, outside of harassing the cardinal. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is another <laughs> I there's there's I think two movies, one of that that actually portrayed that. Because a lot of times it seems in movies, especially like the Disney movies, they seem to be, you know, really organized and amazing. No, no, they're just a bunch of madmen who've been given swords and freedom to go fight people. That's, that is what they do. Even a point in there where they, like, try to get organized but don't have enough money to, like, get their outfits, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> shoot, guys, we do have to get organized. Can you imagine, like, in the, like, from a military perspective of, like, today... Like, if people were just kind of, like, going around and, like, picking fights, and they're like, okay, guys, like, we're gonna get it together, and everybody just kind of looks at each other and is like, we don't have money for outfits. <laughs> Shoot. Yeah. And, like, everybody shows up in, like, basketball shorts yeah. and a sword. Yeah. <laughs> uh... Is my modern-day adaptation of this. And there were so many points throughout the story in which they got money. Like, it, that was a reward of the adventure that they were on. And then when it was time for them to, like, actually have money for the plot, they didn't have... I was like, where did it all go? You just it's keep so talking funny. about how they keep getting all these lever and all of these pistoles. Where did they go? One of them, uh, or at least they, in passing, at least some of them have had what I would describe as a sugar mama. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Including a certain man of the cloth. <laughs> Um, that was really kind of uh, I don't know I don't I don't like to impose modern ideas on ancient people uh, but since the book itself makes note of moments in which it's like okay but remember people were different back then but it didn't actually mention this I'm going to criticize it the way that these four supposed gentlemen regard like the women around them is actually like, I won't even use like an emotionally charged word. I'll call it what it actually is. It is uh, hyper manipulative. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mostly uh, Porthos, where he's got like the old lady that he's, that he's like seeing, uh, I don't know, they call her Duchess or Princess. I never really knew what she was. But yeah, he's like seeing her expressly for her money and there's several scenes in which like he needs money and he's like oh you don't love me why do i even bother i should just go and take my lonely self somewhere else and then she's like you don't mean that he's like of course i do for if you love me you would give me 800 livres for my outfit mm -hmm. like you know what the what the heck is this these are supposed to be chevaliers of a kind but this behavior is like even back then i and that wasn't that long ago 
1844. Wasn't that long ago. I can't believe that this was this particular type of behavior could be like well looked upon. Well, especially when you look at, you know, the Count of Monte Cristo, which he wrote after this, and that it takes a completely different approach to how you treat women and regard women in France. Um, but I think that does lead us to a good next conversation topic, which is how poorly this book is actually portrayed in like modern interpretations and by society like i don't want to be a musketeer i don't think anyone should want to be a musketeer so for those of you who have a podcast called the three musketeers read this book and think about what you've done you also you're missing a person you should have four people you should be the three musketeers with four people come on Three Musketeers with a friend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I... Tag along. Yes. That just stresses me out so much. I, and again, like, if I think of the Three Musketeers from sort of pop culture, I think of people who are likely chivalrous and, like, these are the, the gentlemen fighting for my honor. Nope. Not Honey, they are not fighting for your honor. They are fighting for themselves. I think this book really turns chivalry on its head, especially when you think about the ending. You would normally think that there would be some sort of like redeeming arc of like, even if a woman was evil, like we'll, we'll still fight for those who we love, but we don't, we just behead them. Yep. <laughs> I, I think yeah. anyone who actually um like researches chivalry and what it means this book is not about chivalry at all this, not at all this is about a bunch of guys who like being guys and want to be guys yeah it like these, yeah. these guys are what would be the modern society these guys the original are the, frat boys or the uh, uh professional nfl players who just do whatever they want because they can blow their money yeah like i i or like i'm thinking like wall street bros yes. who just like kind of pick yeah. fights in new york city for the heck of it seem there's like three super money. close guys seem like they make money but actually friend. it's their wives that you know provide for everything or you know mistresses. mistresses nobody's a wife in here That's, they have somebody else's wife in here no, they have they have one wife there is one wife our lovely Athos. Athos well. is like the only one that of the three, he's like the least or of the four, he's like the least offensive of the four. But I mean, I wonder. But like, that's not a high, that's not a saying it's that's not a high bar. Like it doesn't it's not yeah. saying like he's way oh he's so no, he's like the least offensive of <laughs> Um, yeah. Which might What's be really funny? Oh, sorry. Well, I didn't mean to cut you off. It might be because he's the only one that's married. <laughs> <laughs> so what's funny is that in like the two different movies that I've seen, the one that had Charlie Sheen and Kiefer Sutherland, and then the other one, now I'm wondering if I actually did see it, but I, I know that it had Logan Lerman, um, Luke Evans, Orlando Bloom. Um, 
man, Luke Evans. Oof, I get shivers just thinking about him. Anyway, uh, there is so much like it seems like that people wanted this story to be that I, I think everyone just came to the consensus like it was a it was a good premise. <laughs> but the execution of it was, man, so just unlikable. I mean, even if you if you appreciate the storytelling, yeah, there's no one out there, I don't think, that can say that these are especially likable characters. So that's why we get these movies where they're doing all these like crazy, you know, adventurous stuff. I mean, even in the book, their exploits weren't really all of that. I don't know. I would say uh, exciting, maybe with the exception of a couple of D'Artagnan's moments. But yeah, for the most part, they were kind of just like guys who were just just going around the countryside of France and occasionally the city of France. And then they would run into a guy and either kill him or get hurt. <laughs> and then they would just move on to the next plot point. But uh, I was waiting for the scene where they were. Uh, there was one movie where they were like s swinging from banners that were like outside the Louvre. You know, there was rifles firing everywhere. I think the cardinal was trying to assassinate the king. They're like, oh, we must defend the king. It seemed like the king didn't even really care too much about his musketeers. <laughs> and the cardinal uh, came to care more about the king's musketeers than the king did. Like, it was strange. In the movies, they always portray the cardinal as just this awful human being, and his, uh, what do they call his? It was just the cardinal's men. Is that what they were called? Uh, yeah. yeah, I think so. I think so. Uh, as just these terrible people, but the cardinal's men, like, actually did stuff, and like, actually had a had a job. It seemed like, like it seemed like generally it was the musketeers picking fights with them. Um, and yeah, yeah, I know, I know the Cardinal did bad things, but his men seem to have a real purpose in life. Well, so much of the book, the Cardinal is sort of like this kind of behind the scenes person. We just imagine him as being super evil when you actually like meet him later in the book, like he's not as bad I, I, maybe that's like my perspective i just imagine he's like these clear lines of like good and evil and like he is purely evil like yeah he's conniving and like kind of he's, he's not a great guy like i'm not trying to like put him on a pedestal but he he's not pure evil especially compared to some of his men mm -hmm. yeah. yeah yeah i and that was what was interesting was that it it really didn't seem to me like there was any particular reason for the king to employ a force to harass the cardinal outside of the fact that like literally just because the church had power in France um, same way that it did across all of Europe but <laughs> the king seemed kind of like a little a little bratty in that respect I think 
here is where we see him. Because right, this is this is set in the 1600s, written in the 1800s. Um, the, the musketeers were actual. They they were the king's guard, right? They were the king's private military, which I think is really lost in this because this makes it seem like they were literally just made by this king just so he could show up the cardinal, and that's how mm -hmm. they behave. And I, I wonder if the musketeers of when this is set in the 1600s read this story, how angry would they be at how they were portrayed? It, it, this, so this book is apparently based on um, a set of diaries, essentially, by, oh, who was it? By, by a musketeer. And the three mus the three musketeers are based on actual people, but I just don't I don't think it did justice to who they probably actually were. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, or if it did, man, their story isn't as great as you would guess it would be. Mm -mm. <laughs> but it, I I think that generally the um, modern versions pay a little too much homage to this story, but they leave out, you know, the bad guy who has an interesting plot line. Because, you know, I kind of, I have a theory that part of that might be that um, when when a lot of these movies started coming out, it's generally the, if you did it that way, then the way they make the stories, it would make it seem like all women are evil instead of just this individual person is... <laughs> my hot take well because there's also that all women are cowards yeah mm -hmm. cowardly or evil if if they're brave there's a chance that they're conniving in some way yeah which uh, I, I guess if that's why they don't do the milady story but i i yeah i think that uh through the retellings of the retellings of the retellings of this story, you get, <laughs> you get a much better, more polished story than the original. I also wonder yeah. if the pop culture references to Milady like aren't done well because there's so many flashbacks that you have to you would have to see like her in different parts of her life, and it would show too early. I think that it was the same person. Yeah. True. Alternatively, they could just make a movie that's centered around <laughs> Milady. I mean, I would watch that. That'd be just as action-packed as the rest of it. Maybe with a little bit more intrigue, but Milady seems to constantly find herself around action. Mm -hmm. I mean, usually by her own her own hand, the action is made. So, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I, speaking of Milady. I wanted to kind of talk about what did you guys think of the whole um, sense of adventure? Uh, because that was why we picked up this novel. Mm -hmm. And for me, when we got to the ending of it, or I should say when I got to it, it was not, we didn't read it all together, but when I got to the ending of it was when it occurred to me that I don't know if I would call this an adventure novel. Because it seems like all of this stuff has just been really about Milady. Uh, and I recalled the first time that I saw her, and it was like, 
sure, maybe there were some technical like adventures, but it seemed like all of our heroes were just, they happened to be in a place at a particular time, especially in the second half of the book, uh, to where they somehow encountered Milady, And then she began deliberately encountering them. And it was just like, it was, to me, it was unappealing because I wanted to see like, that kind of swashbuckling sort of action adventure. Whereas we started to get a little, a lot more intrigue and these deep personal motivations. And I don't know, I just, I didn't, I didn't feel like it meshed very well with the sense of adventure that was prevalent in the first half of the book. Would you say, then, because this, this, this book, every time you look at it, is irrevocable adventure. Um, would you say that this has been misgenred? I would say that the genre has changed. I think myself and when a lot of other people think about adventure, we don't think about sort of that classical definition of it where it's literally just any sort of escapade. But mm-hmm. we think about specifically um, you're going on some kind of physical journey, like you're actually going somewhere and you're encountering what's along the way in the pursuit of some sort of goal. Um, The difference between exploration and adventuring, in my opinion, is that you have a goal, something that you're going to another place for. Um, And while D'Artagnan did do some of that, uh, unless I'm mistaken, it was was all in the first half of the book, Mm -hmm. which is why I kind of lost that feeling that, oh, now we're just on adventures in the sense of, these sure are crazy times, you know. <laughs> and I think we'll get into it more in a couple weeks, but I just did like a quick Google of like adventure genre definition. And it's like adventure fiction is a genre of fiction that usually presents danger, gives the reader a sense of adventure or a sense of excitement. And the first book that comes up is The Princess Bride, which I think is like a perfect definition of like, yes, that is an adventure. Yeah. 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 I say so. I would agree with you. Like, I lost that the second half of the book. It was the adventure is where we're at. The Princess Bride is almost kind of what I was expecting. Yeah. There was a couple times where I was reading the book and I was trying to think of what had happened in the movie. And then I caught myself thinking about the Princess Bride. (laughs) I was like, wait, no, no. That was that was a different story. But that was. Yeah, that was what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. On that note, should we do, uh, should we do uh, final impressions of this book? Yes, let's wrap it up. <laughs> I can go first. I didn't like it in a shocking turn of how this conversation has turned out. I, I think it was too long. I think it's misgenred. And I think that if you're going to read an Alexander Dumas book for fun, <laughs> don't read this book. Um, he also technically wrote The Nutcracker as a play, and you should try that. I haven't read it, but I feel like I would be less disappointed. Why the Count of Monte Cristo? <laughs> but it's long. you probably read it for 11th grade English, yeah. and you don't need to reread it. It's not one of those books. It's longer than this one, too. It is, yes. Um, my final impressions, 
<sighs> I would read the first half of it. Well, no, I wouldn't read it again. It was still kind of, there were still a lot of despicable actions, but at least there were adventure. Um, I wouldn't even recommend this book, I don't think, because this is kind of just like, to me, this book almost like it, it belongs in a museum. It's just like, oh, <laughs> this is what great fiction once looked like. And I really mean that. Like, I truly believe at the time it was written, this was, you know, high bar. But for reading it now, um, I think there's just too many, like, little things that all kind of add up to make it just unenjoyable, unfortunately. What do you think, Sam? So, I'm the, I, yeah, I'm the only one who read this before. I would say that, because when I originally read this, I was in elementary or middle school. and Nerd. Oh, well, reading it as an adult, like, I realized how, how much I miss the fact that the, it's not an adventure novel. I think when I read it the first time, just like I've talked about, I I followed the Milady plotline. To me, that is the good. That that is the good in this is the Milady plotline, because that's where the intrigue is, and that's where you know who is this woman. And um, but other than that, yeah, it's just it's too much. I I kind of wish that someone would take this. I think what would make this a good book is if someone were to today go take the original French version of this and translate it into a modern English book. It wouldn't be easy. You'd be, you're, you would be a co-author at that point, but, and actually update a lot of things in here and don't sell it as these men are chivalrous and amazing musketeers. Make them Wall Street bros. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, I would also add if anybody knows of an adaptation that follows the Milady plot or like there's like anything out there that we're not aware of, like let us know. I would not be opposed to getting more into that. No, I'd be I'd be really happy with it. Uh, with that though. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us again in about two weeks when we actually discuss adventure genre and um, how it's changed and what it looks like today, what what we usually expect to see out of it. Uh, and until then, subscribe, drop a like, send us any comments on Instagram at Athenaeum Podcast or AthenaeumPodcastLit at gmail.com. Uh, Hope to have you listen to us again later. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye.